If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 12. That's where we are picking it up here this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you should see one on one of the chairs there in front of you. I'd love for you to grab that one. If you don't own one, take that one with you. If you don't like that one, just ask me after the service. I got like nice ones that you can have. They're sweet. Anyway, um, it's the last Sunday before Christmas. If you didn't know that, it's probably time. Probably time. Kind of get ready. That's where we're at as a family. Um, and what we've been doing as we've gone through Advent is we've been looking at, at this, we've been in this series, we've called it Something Greater. We've been looking at Jesus. So far, we've seen him as our, as our greater joy. We've seen him as our greater light. Last week, we saw him as our greater calm. Um, and this week, today, we're seeing Jesus as our greater temple. And so if you are willing and able, I'd ask you to stand with me now as we look together at God's word. We stand because all of us are, are on the same footing. All of us have the same position uh, at the throne of God. So we stand to hear him speak to us today. This is Matthew chapter 12, starting there in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are they're doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only, only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear you. Lord, I pray that you would open our blind eyes to see you. And I pray that you would awaken our souls this morning to draw near to you as you've drawn near to us. Lord, speak to us through your word. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, last week... I think it was last week. It was either last week or the week before. Y'all don't really care. It doesn't really matter. Um, last week, Laurie surprised me with one of my favorite meals from my childhood uh, growing up. It was, and it was like a random night, so like not a special occasion. It was just a random like Tuesday night. Uh, we had gotten the boys home. Uh, Tucker had, had soccer practice, so we're doing like every family, trying to get there, get settled, and kind of do the night together. I'm pretty sure I was losing to an eight-year-old in FIFA on PlayStation just before this. I was at a pretty low point, and um, we come walking down the hallway upstairs, got right to the top of the stairs, and it like hit me. Like the, the smell of this meal hit me. You ever had that type of like, and it takes you back, right? It, it like immediately transports you to a different place. You see, growing up as a kid, um, a lot of our family lived like really close together. People have affectionately called it a compound. We are okay with that as long as you understand there's no like cultish stuff going on there, right? No reason to like storm the gates of the compound. There's actually no gates. Anybody can come down. People ride their bikes down there all the time. But anyway, we grew up really close together. My nearest uh, next door neighbor was my grandmother. And every Sunday... Every single Sunday, my grandmother would have all of us over, like all of her kids and all of their kids, like, like their children and their children, and, and we'd eat lunch together. And when I say lunch, it was like a full-blown Thanksgiving meal every single Sunday. We were, yeah, like, okay, we were extremely spoiled. Um, we understand that. Um, as the family grew, 
And as the grandkids got married, she just added another plate. That was the way she operated. So she would just go to the store and either buy another plate or she'd dig one out of the closet or whatever. And my grandfather, my grandfather said the same exact blessing at every single meal. And, and it, was, it was just repetitive. It was the same, same thing over and over and over again. Um, and there was a big table, right? Um, and then like relatively close by, but kind of in a different room also, there was a kid's table. You should just know I was a kid's table person uh, perpetually, never got elevated. Uh, even after Laurie and I were married, and even after we actually had our first kid, uh, we, we were still at the kid's table. Um, like occasionally we might get like a one-week call-up to the grown-up table, but we pretty quickly realized we were just minor leaguers, man. They send us right back down, right back down to the kid's table. Um, but that was an essential part of my childhood. Like it was an essential part of, of God's, of the formation of my life, all right? And, and the memories of that have stuck with me. And we all have these types of memories, right? We have these things from our past that if you smell something, if you taste something, if you hear something, it kind of takes you back to that place. And, and these are powerful things. Like these memories are, they're, they're, they're powerful. There's a certain, certain nostalgia that hits and it, and, it's, and it gets you, it captivates you. Now I also understand that like these memories are not, for everybody in the room, like, Maybe these memories aren't great memories. Like you can have that same thing and it'd be a negative thing. Like you can smell something, hear something, taste something, and it take you back to a different place. And that wave of nostalgia doesn't feel like a holiday at the coast. It feels more like a tsunami kind of crashing into your life unexpectedly. But we all have these memories. And no matter where we come from, these memories take us immediately back to something that we remember as good, that we remember as safe, that we remember as beautiful. You see, nostalgia and traditions are a powerful thing. I mean, they, they really are. And God's grand design of mankind, He has made us, He's formed us in such a way that we have what are really like spiritual connections to the events and to the moments of our lives. This is how we're wired, okay? God, like God formed us with this inherent sense of, of like meaning and purpose, that, that, that the things that we do in this life matter, that it has meaning, that, that we, like that you and I, as we sit here today, we, we have some purpose in this life. And, and purpose necessitates design, right? And what these memories do is they trigger something transcendent and powerful in our hearts, like, like deep in our souls, connecting our experience in the temporal, both the broken and the beautiful of the temporal, to our indwelling and God-given sense of the eternal. Well, if you're a first century Jew, okay, growing up in and around Palestine at the time of Jesus, the temple in Jerusalem is a major locus of almost all of your formative memories, right? The temple is a central place and even a central motif in your life. Things revolve around temple life. There's an annual rhythm. Like even if you don't live in Jerusalem, there's an annual rhythm to your life, a cadence to your life that revolves around the temple. It's this repeating chorus that comes up over and over and over again. Not, not totally unlike Advent is for the Christian church today that kind of comes back. It draws you into this nostalgia and reminds you of who you are and where you came from. And so whether it was Passover or the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of, of Booths, it was Jerusalem and the temple specifically that was the place of pilgrimage. The temple was the place that you went for all things 
spiritual. And so there's a deeply formed, when you, when you read Jesus in Matthew 12, you need to understand the audience there with him, there's this deeply formed nostalgia in them when he mentions the temple. It's like grandmama's house all over again, but like on steroids, because it's not just a meal that they're gathering for, it's, it's their entire spiritual life. R.C. Sproul has said the temple, like the tabernacle before it, represented the presence of God in the midst of his people. It was the center of the Jews' religious life, the central place of worship and sacrifice. Don't you remember that? The central place of worship and sacrifice. But, and this is, this is really important for us to know, even with all the personal connection that someone might have to the temple, there's a disconnect. And it's what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call this old temple dissonance. Now, I, I really wanted to come up with something clever. Like, I, I was like, this is going to be a great Sunday. We were having a baptism, like this Christmas music and stuff like that. Like, I wanted to come up with something really clever, but I couldn't. So I'm just calling it old temple dissonance, all right? So for the average person in that day, you are, here's what it is. You're sort of perpetually at the kids' table in your spiritual life. Like, you're perpetually there because despite how personal it was to be there, you were never completely there. You were never completely there. Remember, it was the priest who were the ones who made the sacrifices. It was the priest who did that. You, you, you brought the sacrifices, right? There was a whole economy of sorts set up around this. You might remember Jesus turning over the tables related to this. There's a whole economy set up around the sacrifices, but it was the priest who actually did the sacrifices. The people purchased it and they brought them, but it was the priest who actually did the offering. They stood, the priests stood as mediators between the people and God. They were the gatekeepers of the entire sacrificial system of, of forgiveness. And, and at the temple, if, you, if you, you may not know this, but it was the Levites, all right? Uh, the, the Levites who sang the Psalms during the times of worship. So they had professional choirs. They were the Levites who would sing the Psalms. They knew the language. They knew the words. And they would do the singing. And so you could hear it. And you might even know some of the words. Some of it would probably be familiar to you. But it was the Levites who offered the verbal praise to God through singing. And then you had like, so there's two groups. You got the, you got the Levites and you got the priests. And then you have the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the ones mentioned here in Matthew 12, right? Who served as sort of the gatekeepers of God's word. They were the authorities on the scriptures. And if you look at the words of Jesus here in verse 3, look at that with me. It's clear that he didn't think, that Jesus did not think that they were doing a really good job of it. And this is what brings about this whole issue of the Sabbath. The Pharisees say, this is verse 2, look at that. They say, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So that's the charge. Like That's the charge against Jesus and his disciples. It's interesting that they just say the disciples and not Jesus. So it's kind of a, kind of a veiled attack. But they come at him and say, your, dis- your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath, and, and yes, listen, God has spoken and given us a, he's given us a picture of what he desires for his and people. And so here's what it is. The Pharisees believe that plucking a head of grain, and I know we have very little, um, uh, li- very little like understanding of what this would be like to walk through a field and pluck a head of grain. And so maybe it's like going to the grocery store. All right, that's probably the closest thing and buying a loaf of bread. All right. And so they're walking through there, they're plucking a head of grain to eat on the Sabbath, and they believe that is a prohibition against harvesting on the Sabbath. That was their line in the sand that they're drawing. 
that if you pluck a head of grain, you are harvesting, and that is a violation of the Sabbath law. God had said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's the fourth commandment. Most of us know that. We may not know it as the fourth, but we know that was one of the commandments. It's Deuteronomy 28. He says, remember the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then it goes on to say this. He says, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who lives within your gate. So that's a comprehensive, we want you to shut it down on the Sabbath, right? Nobody do any work on the Sabbath. God intends for one day out of seven to be very very different. It's, it's that there is this day that is to be set apart from the daily rhythms and patterns. It's different. It's a very, like, like one of these things is not like the others when you look at the Sabbath. And this day where we find Jesus in Matthew 12 happens to be a Sabbath day. And the disciples, right in there in verse 1, it says that they were what? They were hungry, which is prone to happen with human beings, right? It doesn't say that they were famished. It doesn't say that they were starving. Both of those would be, they would be wild exaggerations of of the words that are used there, but they were hungry. And so what did they do? They ate. They were hungry and they ate. And to the Pharisees, to these legalistic and sort of fundamentalist interpreters of Scripture, this is inexcusable. And we don't need to spend too long on this because Jesus doesn't spend too long on this. But, but what he does next is pretty powerful. He basically asks these gatekeepers of the Word of God if they have actually read the Word of God. Like two times, did you notice that? Two times, both in verse 3 and in verse 5, Jesus asked them, have you not read? And that's really, that's more of an accusation than it is a question. And then he brings two examples. One of them involves David and his troops eating the bread of the presence, an offering that was reserved for the priests. And the other example is one involving the priests themselves, some of whom were Pharisees, some of them who were standing there with him right now, who labored in the temple on the Sabbath. This is not a contradiction of the law. What what we have with the Pharisees is we have a misinterpretation of the law. And this is what all legalism sort of ultimately leads to. But here's why this is important in respect to the temple. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the temple. We're not talking about the Sabbath specifically, but the Sabbath happens to be what brought the temple into it. This is why that's important. It's because they've allowed their own tradition. These people have allowed their own tradition And we all have the capacity to fall into this pattern, but they've allowed their tradition to be elevated to the equal standing with the law of God. And in their blindness, instead of obedience to the law of God, they've created a new law entirely. And we love to do this. We don't want to do what God tells us to do. We want Him to change the law to match what we want to do. We, We all do this. Every single, we don't want, we don't want the law, we want a new law. And so now there's this constant disharmony. That's what dissonance is. There's this constant dissonance between what God said to do and what they were actually doing. And so what's happened is that the temple, this tangible thing that was been commissioned by God and established by God as a reminder of His presence with His people, it's been corrupted by His people. And it's become a hurdle between them and their God. Instead of reminding God's people of God's presence, it's become the object of their worship. It's become the center of their worship. And so I guess what I want to ask you is, is like, where is your center of worship today? Where's your temple today? 
I mean, maybe it's your children, right? We got a lot of young parents, a lot of young families in this place. Maybe the center of your life and worship has become your kids. I'll never forget when we were about to have our our first child. Somebody, uh, one of the pastors came to me at the church we were in at the time. He said, listen, you're going to have to be careful because she's going to cry and she's going to eat and she's going to go to the bathroom and you're going to worship that child. It will make no sense, but you'll do it. So maybe it's our kids. Maybe it's the career path, right? You know, maybe it's maybe it's that that pursuit of something greater in our professional life. Maybe it's convenience. We've we've said this uh, several times over the last few years, but the the major, the primary values of the suburbs. You ready for this? Here they are: their convenience, abundance, and comfort. Those are the three things that I absolutely take for granted that every single one of you is chasing: convenience, abundance, and comfort. Maybe it's one of those. Maybe it's some issue in the world, right? That's become very popular in our day, that if we have some issue with what's in the world, we expect that that singular issue will become the issue for every other person in the world. Maybe that's what, maybe that's your center of worship. Maybe that's become your temple. seems to be very popular around us. All these different issues, different agendas, different causes, all vying for the place of supremacy in our hearts. Maybe it's finding the right person to marry. Maybe it's finding the right friend group to belong to. Maybe it's finding the right look finding the right team to cheer for. There are way too many professing Christians asking their preferred team to fill the gap of eternity in their hearts. Too many people asking kids and cosmetics to bring them completion in life. And it's all doomed to fall, ultimately just like the temple in Jerusalem. Do you remember that scene in John 4? Not to break Well, we are. We're going to break entirely from Matthew 12. You remember that scene in John 4 where Jesus meets with a Samaritan woman at a well? It's pretty pretty familiar. He meets this woman at the well, and he starts the whole thing asking, starts off this whole conversation by asking her to give him a drink. And in all the twists and turns of the conversation with this woman, remember, Jesus tells her that he can give her what he calls living water. That's what he says. She's there at the well to get water, and Jesus offers her something better than what she can get out of that well. And she ends up saying, this is John, this, uh, John 4, 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And here's her question. She says, this is verse 20 in John 4. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You know, I believe she's being genuine in that. I think this is something she'd wrestled with. I don't think she was trying to trick him. I don't think she was trying to try. I think she is genuinely convinced that there's a, that there's a disconnect between what she believes and, and what the Bible says. I think she's being genuine. She recognizes a, a geographical difference between these people. She recognizes a racial difference. She recognizes a, like a true and palpable cultural difference. And here's what Jesus said to her. He said, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So here's what he's doing. He's eliminating the geographical difference right out of the gate. He's taking that off the table. He says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So he's eliminating, in that sense, he's eliminating the racial difference. He's taking that off the table. He doesn't say that white people will worship one way and brown people will worship one way and black people some other way. He doesn't say that. He says that all true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. And so he's eliminating that racial difference. And then here's what he says. Don't miss this. John 4.24, he says this. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. One more time, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You see, the prevailing cultural thought 
was that the location was central to worship. And this has been true um, for nearly every man-made religion. Like, we're good at making our shrines. We're, we're really good at it. If you, if you track all the other world religions, they will have some sacred place that is directly connected to their faith that you have to get to, or that you have to pray to, or you have to pilgrimage to. We love to take created things and, and, and elevate them around us into the place of eternal things or ultimate things. But Jesus blows that whole idea out of the water. He enters into the religious chaos of the moment. He enters into that spiritual dissonance. In this case, that dissonance is centered on the temple. And here's what it reminds me of. All right, we got, a, we got an eighth grader who's in the band at school. All right, he had a concert this past week. He doesn't want me to tell you this. He did great. It's unbelievable. He's in the eighth grade band called the Honors Band. But before the Honors Band, they also had the Beginner Band. The Beginner Band has just had instruments for, what, two and a half months? Three months at this point. If you've never heard a two month, two and a half month clarinet player, you are missing it. It is an experience to hold on to. I mean, it sounds like choking a duck to death. Like, and they're trying their little hardest and they're smiling, but I'm telling you, it sounds like an animal is just getting just it, it's it's bad. Anyway, um, this is what that reminds me of. We think about the dissonance in the spiritual life of people today and, and, and in that time. It's like, it's like when the orchestra is out on the stage getting ready for the concert. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like all of them are out, like the whole philharmonic out there. Like there's like 80, 90 musicians out there. They all have their individual instruments and they're all like tuning and playing and like, and they've got their little ear monitor things and so they can't hear everybody else. They're just, they're just over there playing away or, or whatever. They're, I don't know. I obviously don't play any instrument, all right? So what, they're, they're doing this and all all that sort of stuff. And they can't hear anybody else but themselves. But it's just this chaos. If you're in the audience, it's just pure chaos. Like it's painful to listen to. It really is. Like it's, it's like this is really bad. This is a bad, bad sound. And then here's what happens. Usually so the first chair violin will stand up and everybody, when that person stands up, they all, it, it just kind of stops. And they'll take their bow and I don't know what note it is because I don't play anything, but they just like pull their bow across that note and they set that note, and everybody tunes to it. Have you ever seen this happen? Like, it's really cool. Everybody kind of just, anyway, I should not make those types of sounds. Sorry. They, they, that's what happens, though. They kind of come in, this one person sets the one note, and everybody else around them matches to that one note. Listen to me. Jesus is that, in this, Jesus is that one note. That's what he is. When he says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here, he's claiming that position, not of the first chair. He's not claiming to be the person standing up there setting the note. It's more than that. The first chair was the temple. That's what the first chair was. It was the temple. It was pointing forward to the coming Messiah, reminding us. That's what the temple was a constant reminder of, that something is coming. It was pointing forward to, to the Christ who came into the world to seek and to save the lost, to, to reconcile us to our Creator. It was pointing forward to Jesus as the true and better temple, right? To the, to the temple not made with hands. That's what, that's what Stephen talked about in Acts 7. Now, Jesus isn't the first chair. Jesus is the one note. He's the answer to that gap of eternity as, as he comes into our curse, as he enters into our pain, as he steps into our misery and into our death. He, he comes into our sin and depravity as the great answer to all of it. That's what he is for us. 
In the chaos of all the old temple dissonance, Jesus brings the beauty and the splendor of this new temple harmony. And now in him, as as new creation, sons and daughters, as the blood-bought children of the living God, all the brokenness is coming undone. That's why Peter says this. You ever think about this in 1 Peter? He says that you are a chosen race. That's what he calls the church. That's what he calls believers. You're a chosen race because Jesus undoes all the fractures in humanity. Peter says you are a royal priesthood because we have no need anymore for an earthly mediator. The curtain of the temple has been torn, and by grace, through faith, we have open access to the Father through the Son. He says that you are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. These are the fruit of redemption in Jesus Christ. And then Peter gives us a meaning and purpose statement. He says that Christ has done all of this for us, and here's what he says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what he says. That's the purpose statement there. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So so where's your temple today? How would you even begin to know? You'll know by the excellencies that you're proclaiming. That's a true statement. You will know what your temple is by the excellencies you're proclaiming. You'll know by the sacrifices that you're making. You'll know because it's what is burdening you. You'll know because it's where your heart is. That's where your temple is. And to us today, Jesus says something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than all of those temporal things. Something greater than, I know, something greater than your kids. Something greater than your spouse or future spouse. Something greater than that job. Something greater than comfort. Something greater than security. Something greater than ease of life is here. Something greater then the temple is here. He's the one who says, it's in Matthew 11, just before this, in the chapter just before this. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Anybody feel labored and heavy laden? I don't know a soul who isn't worn out. Not one. I, I genuinely don't know a person who's like, you know what, man, everything is perfect. If you ever meet that person, you're going to want to run away immediately, all right? Because it's about to go real bad. Not because of karma or something like that. They're just about to learn something, all right? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And what does he say? I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Listen to me. That's the invitation to you today. In all the craziness of this season, all the craziness of this world, and all the craziness of all the temples that all of us seek after, he says, come to me and find rest for your souls. It's come to Jesus and find rest. It's to come to Jesus and find hope. It's to come to Jesus and find peace. It's to come to Jesus and be in the light. Listen, the shadow of the old temple has been replaced. It's no longer necessary because the real thing is here. He's inviting you in today. That's the invitation he's offering to you today. And it's not a nostalgic invitation to to what used to be. It's not an invitation to the kids' table, right? Not into the old dissonance, not, a, not into the old. He's calling into something brand new. Something brand new, something beautiful, something better than. He's calling you into the harmony of his own heart. That's what we celebrate here, not just at Advent, but we celebrate that every day of life as we look to Christ as the author and perfecter of our faith, as we look to him as our greater temple, 
one who is worthy of worship, one who is worthy of our praise, one who is worthy of our devotion. That's the invitation to you. If you're tired, if you're worn out, if you're frustrated, if you've got shame, if you've got guilt, if you've got doubt, then Jesus says, bring that stuff to me. If Jesus is willing to take the cross for you, surely he'd take your, your shame today. That's the invitation, is to come to him. I don't know who said it first. It's been quoted by about everybody at this point, but it's very simple. The ground is always level at the foot of the cross. And so it doesn't matter what you walk in here with today. You don't have to carry it out with you. You can leave it right here. Because our God is good. And he is a better temple for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you that you aren't afraid of our mess. That you aren't afraid of of our fear, that you aren't afraid of our failings, you aren't afraid, like there's nothing that you look at in us and go, man, I just don't know if we can overcome that. No, you look at us and you say, come on home. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Lord, I know there are people in here today who are heavy laden. And there are hearts who came in your burden. Lord, I pray that you would take that. Grab a hold of it. You might have to wrestle it from our foolishly, tightly gripping hands. Lord, just break our fingers if you have to, to help us surrender this morning. And I pray that you would be with us as we go from here. Help us to walk in your light. Help us to walk in your hope. Help us to walk in your, in your love. And forgive us for the times when we try not to. Or be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.